0: We're talking about blurred lines, about relationships, and I—I uh, I saw this blurred lines poster around. and I thought, I wonder what that—that's about—and be the person, the person you are looking for is looking for. I got it. Look at that, and um, yeah, I went and talked to Simo and Neil, and they said oh, it's about relationships. And I thought, crikey, talk about being unqualified to speak on a topic talking to a room full of married people who are <laughs> on the journey, have done the hard yards, and I am just this young buck with no idea. So I want um, to start this morning by, uh, by being transparent in that sense. I have done a talk on relationships before in chapel at school, but I'm slightly more qualified than that audience. So I came in with a little bit more of an idea of where we were headed. And I asked Neil and Simo about whether the content of that talk would be suitable, and they've both stolen all of that content already the last two weeks. So I've been praying and reading and uh, asking God for some new light to shed on relationships and on blurred lines for you guys this morning. And I want to pray, even though I've already prayed twice, um, for God to speak right now. So if you want to bow your heads. Lord, relationships are the essence of our existence. Relationship with you, relationship with each other. And I pray that this morning you would speak, you would shed new light on this topic, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us humility, and that you would give us peace as we talk about this topic. And Lord, I pray that we leave this place with a deeper understanding of what it means to connect with you and to share that connection with one another. Amen. I'm going to keep an eye on the time because uh, someone pointed out to me the other week that I'm starting to treat sermons like lesson plans and 50 minutes is a little bit uh, long-winded. So it's 11.20. We'll be done by 11.30. (laughs) Relationships. I have had some limited experience in this area and I remember being scared most of the times about relationships when I was young. I remember the first two girlfriends I ever had, and um, girlfriends is a loose, a loose terminology to use for these acquaintances. I was in year five and I heard this girl called Megan had a crush on me, and um, Cahoon's going to get some good, some <laughs> mileage out of this talk. And so this girl decided that her and I were dating. She had a twin sister who came and told me, you and Megan are dating. I thought, all right. I remember going home and telling my brother about this, and he was in year two or year three, had no idea, but he was just my shoulder to cry on about my dilemma. And I remember looking in the, I have this distinct memory of looking in the mirror, it's one of those weird things, eh? and just going, you've got a girlfriend. (laughs) What does that mean? What is required of you? I went to school the next day and let her sister know that I just didn't have what it took and it was over. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I have a very hazy recollection of the first time I ever shared a childish kiss with a girl. We had these family friends, um, Brian and Jan. My mum and dad went through prenatal classes with them, and their daughter Kamley and I were born within a few days of each other. We used to visit them in Ballina every year at Christmas holidays, and, and as I was really young, I obviously um, had no idea... About the interaction between a boy and a girl. But as I got to year six, year seven, we started to go and visit Brian and Jan and Camley. And Camley started to become quite easy on the eyes. And, um, <laughs> and we found ourselves this one time playing uh, tips with my brother and her younger brother. And, uh, and, and we ended up kissing, we pecked on the lips. And I remember walking away thinking, What is required of me? <laughs> what has just happened? And, uh, and it struck me, I remember as a young kid, as a moment, just going, there's supposed to be more to that. There's supposed to be a deeper connection. And there was a few years after that when we would go and visit Brian and Jan and my interactions with Camila had suddenly become very awkward. And it wasn't until I was like 18 and I was driving through and I texted her and she was working at Maccas at Ballina and I stopped in and saw her. And we, we reflected on this, this pretty funny memory we had and how it had, it had stunted our friendship for a few years because... There was supposed to be more to that, and as young kids, we just didn't understand that with this physical kind of uh, vulnerability that you you shared with one another, there was supposed to be connection and trust and a contract. And I guess you better get used to that term, the contract, I'll be talking about a bit this morning. My mum and dad broke up, and I remember talking to them afterwards, particularly to my dad. Um, He got pretty real with me a few times about their divorce and why it happened and how he felt about that. And they weren't spiritual people. Still aren't, unfortunately. Probably more open to it now than they were when I was a kid, but still searching. And I remember my dad saying to me, you know, your mum and I built our marriage on success, financial income, cars, houses. My dad's a builder. Uh, Holidays overseas. You guys going to a private school and having good marks. Our life was built upon these shaky foundations and when it came to a time of trial we didn't have a foundation that ran much deeper than those material things and so we crumbled and i remember him admitting to me he goes i wish i could be more spiritual i wish i knew what that was i wish i knew what your brother and you have discovered in this adventist community this spiritual life and He goes, i wish i had that and i wish that your, your mum and i shared that because I feel like that would have been a, a deeper contract than what we had in bank accounts and on bits of paper. It would have been something more, and we might have made it. I remember talking to my dad again about his parents when they both died within a few years of each other, and asking them as a, as a grandkid who'd now grown up and had a bit more of an understanding of my grandparents' lives, you know, is there things that grandma and grandpa did that, you know, you think they would have done differently? Like they were, committed church going people brought my dad and, and his sister and his brother up in the uniting church and they both walked away and he wasn't really he couldn't shed much light on that but he said you know grandma always wanted to travel she had an adventurous spirit but granddad wanted a farm and he didn't see any need to do anything more than travel around australia and there was always a point of contention he said i remember when i was a kid and he said there's a few things like that but you always knew that they would work through it they had a deeper contract with one another And grandma knew that her love for her husband was bigger than whether they went on overseas adventures. It was about building a life and a family together. And I remember him sharing that at her funeral and thinking, man, that's powerful. Sacrifice, a deep contract that goes beyond what you do and what you say and goes to the depths of how you understand what each other's needs are and how you you make sacrifice and you serve each other in that. And I think Neil touched on this relationship is servanthood. It's serving your partner. It's serving your friends. It's serving your community. Now, Ephesians talks about this. Ephesians has a pretty clear text on this. Um, I'll put a marker in here. And it says this in Ephesians five twenty two: Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by washing of the water with the word. And I'll stop there. There's a contract that's deeper when we have a spiritual union. Unfortunately, the contract and the idea of a contract with God And the idea even of a contract with one another has become caught up with another terminology. And I feel that we sometimes don't know how to define the two. The contract, the old covenant between us and God and how that relates to how we relate to one another has become caught up with this terminology that's become a bit of a dirty word in some circles and that's legalism. That it's about just following the letter of the law. That the contract is about what we do. That the contract is about faith by works, that our relationship with God is all about works and earning our own salvation. And that adherence to the contract is really important in light of that. Now, legalism's not ideal. It's essentially it's the contract without the love. And we see this in the Pharisees. We talk about when Jesus talks about woe to the Pharisees and they wear their phylacteries on their head. Now, they've got the contract written on their heads but not on their hearts. There's no love in it. But Obedience to the contract has become lost in this war of words. You see, there's nothing wrong with the contract, or obeying it. It's just if it's empty, if it's hollow, that it becomes problematic. The same in, say, my parents' marriage, a contract on their wedding day that they signed, that had become hollow as it was buried under the pile of consumerism. So the the contracts become lost in this war of words and, and intentions. And in uh, Samuel, we see David. Getting messed up. If you want to turn to Second Samuel eleven, there's a pretty well-known story of David and Bathsheba. I'll read a little bit of it, but I'll assume that you know a fair bit of it as well. In the spring of the year, of the, of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when he arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messages and took her. And she came to him and and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. Now you guys know the details Uriah comes home, David tries to get him drunk and to have him lay with his wife so that the baby will be, uh, appear to be his. And Uriah is a better man than David even when he's drunk, he doesn't do it. So he sends Uriah back to the front line and has him killed. It's a pretty low act. Now Nathan rebukes David in chapter 12, but I'll jump past that. And David obviously has it on his heart that he's done the wrong thing. In 2 Samuel 12, uh, Chapters 12 through to 20, it says this. The child was born, and the Lord afflicted that child with, um, that was born to Uriah's wife, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and he fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is. And then David arose from the earth, and washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes, and he went into the house of the Lord. And he worshipped. Powerful moment. In the midst of the trial, he worships. Why does he worship? I read that and I thought, man, why does he worship? The reason David worships is because he gets it. He broke the contract, he broke the contract with his father, he broke the contract with this woman. And he knows the process that he has to come back, he has to come back to the Father. There's nothing he can do to fix or change the situation he's done other than worship. He strayed from the covenant that God set out that you would not commit adultery, that you would not take another man's wife as your own. And he's the king. And his kingly accountability tells him there's only one thing I can do here and that's to come back to the Father and worship. He's obedient. He was disobedient but he understands that to re-establish the contract he needs to obey God. Now I've got a challenging question for you. Do you believe, and this is a no-brainer in some ways, but then in other ways a question that would probably make some of us uncomfortable. Do we believe in a God that demands obedience and submission? And if we don't, aren't we just living as gods of our own lives and of our own relationships? Now, I would say we would all agree that while it is uh, sometimes in our lives tough to admit when we're trying to control our little world, that we do believe in a God that demands obedience. And we do believe in a God that demands us to submit to him. Now, the Old Testament law taught that relationship was contractual. Um, With God, we have the old covenant, and with each other. Now, there's nothing really, really wrong with this. It's not bad. It's just God working within the culture and the context that the people were living in. Now, I heard this really interesting sermon the other day about uh, the sacrifice, Abraham going to sacrifice his son, and how we read that and we go, man, what a good guy, what a willing sacrifice to take your own son up to the altar. But when we read the Bible in context, Abraham was born into a culture where sacrificing children happened. You sacrificed to the gods to appease them because the gods were angry and we needed atonement for that. And so when this God, the one God that Abraham's listening to, says, sacrifice your son on the altar, and we read it in our context and go, man, what a willing guy to go and do that. But he would have been like, that's what we do. We we got to atone for our our sins. So I'm sacrificing my son. And the non-Christian audience read it and go, what a crazy man. You guys say he's good because he was willing to sacrifice his son. But really, within the context, if we understand the culture, this is normal. In the same way, the Old Testament law and the contract that God drew up with the people, there was nothing wrong with it. It wasn't bad. We look back on it sometimes and say it was bad because of how it was used. But it's not bad by its very nature. It was there to give the people guidelines and boundaries to work and live within in how they related to each other and to their father. But... Come the New Testament, we've got some problems with the contract. And they'd been ongoing throughout Israel for years. And it was this, that they'd come to worship the contract more than the God who gave it to them. And they'd expanded the contract and added layers to it, to the point where the contract was more important than ever connecting with the Father. And the other issue with the contract was that they'd come to use it to judge one another, rather than understanding that it was a vessel through which they were to love one another. And they would started to use it as a measuring stick by which they would judge every person in their community rather than understanding that it was there to facilitate loving relationship with one another. Enter Jesus of Nazareth, the revolutionary of his time. And am get straight to John. And I've spoken on this story before. I'm not sure if it was here, but I have spoken about it. In John chapter 8, we have a woman caught in adultery. Now again, you guys are familiar with this story. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives early in the morning. He came to the temple, and all the people came to him and sat, and he taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought before him a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law Moses commanded to stone such women, what do you say? You see, we read this in our context and we go, What a rough bunch of guys. Why would they do that to this poor woman? But in the context of their culture, she'd been caught doing the wrong thing, and they were living in a culture that was ruled by the contract, and she'd broken it. So this is normal. Jesus is revolutionary for saying, No, 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 this is not how we treat people. The Pharisees in the eyes of the community would have been, Oh, yeah, they've got a point. Fair enough. What do we do with her? Do we stone her? It's a tough call. We read it in our context and go, this is a no-brainer. You love the person. Jesus responds by bending down and writing with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And one by one, they disappeared, starting with the oldest. Jesus stood up at the end and said to the woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, well, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus is teaching the people here that love comes first, and the contract can be then built upon that foundation. He doesn't send her away with no command and just say, oh, yeah, those guys were bad guys. Go and keep doing whatever you want. He does send her away with a command. And from now on, sin no more. See, now that she's experienced the love of the Father, she understands why the contract is so valuable. And before this encounter with Jesus, the contract was just this thing. You'd use this, this covenant to lord it over her and all of the people's decisions and their lifestyles. There's 613 mitzvots, don't carry your mat here, don't speak with this person, don't interact on this level, don't do this on this day. It was hollow, it was empty. She encounters love. And all of a sudden, that agreement with the Father comes to life and has meaning and has value and has purpose. And Jesus does this just about every time he heals someone or raises them up out of sin. He sends them out with a commandment, and it's, now you have known what love is. Go and live accordingly. How does she respond? Well, there's two, or there's potentially three recordings of how this woman responds in the Bible. The first is in Mark. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark fourteen three to 9. Jesus is anointed at Bethany. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always will have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body before the burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in her memory. Now John records the same story but with some other details. In John 12, 1 to 8 Mary anoints Jesus at Bethany. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served and Lazarus was one of them reclining at the table. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, and now we get an identity of those who scolded her. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Judas, still looking for a Messiah that will give him a contract, that will save him from Roman oppression, still looking for a warrior a contractual God who will rock up and say, these are the rules, these are the new rules, and we live by them. And now instead of having those rulers, the Caesars, we'll have this Messiah still looking for that ruler. And he hasn't got the one he's looking for. And if we turn back to Mark, we see that in the very next chapter, Judas to betray Jesus. It's almost like it was the straw that broke the camel's back for Judas. He goes, you know what? I'm sick of this guy. am sick of this guy wasting money and treating sinners like they're okay and they're equal. It's time for me to make a change. He's not the contractual Messiah who is going to save us and release us from this oppression that I was hoping for. He's wasting my time and I'm done with him. And he goes and he betrays him. Jesus understands that despite Judas's righteous words, this could have been spent to help the poor. He knows what's behind that facade, that there's a heart that is not a heart of love, it's a heart of judgment. And despite Mary's outward appearance, this woman who is looked down upon, Jesus sees beyond that as well and knows that behind that there's a heart with great intentions to love. Mary does something beautiful for Jesus and this is kind of the teaching point for today and if you forget everything else or you've fallen asleep on me, these four things, these four things Mary does to express Something beautiful for Jesus. What she does is bold and courageous. She walks into a room full of religious men, and she is a woman looked down upon, and she steps into that space. I mean, that would have taken courage. That's bold. Second thing, she makes a great sacrifice. three 300 denarii, that is like a year's wages in that time or more, and she just pours it out. The material value of this means nothing to the eternal value of worshipping Jesus. What she does is reckless. And that's why Judas is ticked off. Because the combination of her bold courage and her sacrifice is just reckless. It makes no sense. But so often when we do something for God, when we step out and we do something beautiful for Jesus, for someone else, it is reckless. And people will say, what would you do that for? I read this story the other day of a couple in a church in America. They heard that there was a single mum in their church who could not afford to feed her family. And this couple took her to Costco and said, you just get what you need for the next three months. And she walked out of there with $900 worth of groceries that day. And this couple that paid for this, they weren't flushed with cash, they weren't affluent, they were just your everyday middle-class Americans. But God put it on their hearts to do something beautiful for this woman. It was bold. It was courageous. It was sacrificial. And in the eyes of many, reckless. But they did it. Another story I read in this same devotional was of a man who inherited a house out of the will of a parent that he didn't know. And he didn't know what to do with this house. It was excess. He heard of a young family in his church, who just could not afford to pay rent. They'd been kicked out. He went and picked them up. He took them to the house he'd inherited. He gave him the keys and said, Let me give you a tour of your new home. In our culture, that's reckless. In our culture, that's bold. In our culture, that is sacrifice. But it's doing something beautiful for Jesus. The fourth thing that I would identify Mary's act as is a form of worship. She's bold. She makes a sacrifice. She's reckless. But she's worshipping her God through what she does. Our worship doesn't have to look like singing or praying or attending small group. And what she does is worshipping Jesus. So I want to challenge you guys this morning with this thought. When was the last time you responded to Jesus like that? Because that's where it begins. We're talking about blurred lines. We're talking about relationships. But all of our relationships have to come from the first relationship, the first love, which is knowing Jesus. When was the last time you responded to Jesus like that? With bold courage, with reckless sacrifice, with worship. And not just Jesus, when was the last time that you responded to your family like that? That you broke out of the -the run-of-the-mill routine of getting up, doing breakfast, going to work, coming home, doing dinner, talking a bit going back to bed, arranging something special every couple of weekends, dutifully showing up to church? When was the last time you responded to your family with bold courage, with reckless sacrifice? When was the last time you worshipped together and not just in a worship of attendance? When was the last time you treated and responded to a friend like that? Or if we start talking about relationships and the people sitting by our sides right now, when was the last time you responded to your partner like that with bold, courageous, reckless sacrifice? You did something for them that they understood, not that you loved them with your words, but that you loved them with your actions. And that that love doesn't just come from wanting to please them or wow them with money and with gifts, but that it comes from an understanding that Jesus loved us first and that there's a contract between him and us and that contract stands between us and one another and that contract calls us to be obedient not to become lazy or complacent or to walk away from each other when it gets hard but to stand by each other to stand by each other even in the face of divorce to stand by each other even when your partner wants to travel and you just want to stay in Australia and work to stand by each other even when you look in the mirror and you go what is required of me? Our society is the polar opposite to the time of the Jewish culture that Jesus walked into in a lot of ways. We seek the feeling and experience of love as consumers. We live in a consumer society. And the contract that's supposed to guide that love is crumbling under our ignorance and complacency. So may we come back to the first love, to Jesus. May we walk with him, knowing that the contract with him is worth it and let all of our relationships whether they be romantic our friends our family or strangers may all of our relationships be bound to that love and to that contract that we have with him let's pray god i want to thank you i want to praise you for the vision and the understanding of us that you have you know every step that we will take and you have put a provision in place for all of them, for when we need to be picked up, to be loved, to be carried, for when we need guidelines and boundaries, for when we face trials and when we face victories. You're there and you're calling us to love you as we have been loved. And Lord, this morning I want to just praise you for that. And I want to praise you for your wisdom in giving us a contract that demands our obedience and our submission, a covenant that calls us to be the best that we can be, not simply all we can give and you'll do the rest, but that when we walk with you, we can give everything to you and to one another. And Lord, I pray for this refreshed community, that we would be bold, that we would be sacrificial, that we would be reckless and that we would worship God with such reckless abandon, that we would worship you and that we would apply those principles in the relationships that we move in in our day-to-day lives. That people would know us as a marked people because we're outrageous and we're reckless and we blow people away, but not with strange acts, but with acts of love. And Lord, I pray that you would walk with us as we leave this place. Amen.